Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. If scientists supposedly now agree it's not nature versus nurture, but the interaction of nature and nurture, why is the debate still going on? In his new book out from MIT Press, Beyond Versus, The Struggle to Understand the Interaction of Nature and Nurture, James Tabry, University of Utah Associate Professor of Philosophy, says that from disputes of the 1930s regarding eugenic sterilizations to controversies in the 1970s about the gap in IQ scores for black and white Americans to the contemporary debate about the causes of depression, this debate keeps emerging, frustratingly so. Uh, He says the divide persists because scientists aren't just arguing about data and results. They're engaged in a fundamentally philosophical debate about what the interaction of nature and nurture actually means. And he says this can be attributed to what he calls an explanatory divide. We'll get into that. Drawing on recent developments in philosophy of science, he offers a way to bridge the divide. And looking to the future, he evaluates ethical issues that surround genetic testing for genes implicated in interactions of nature and nurture. Very interesting, and uh, I think we're all involved in this in one way or another nowadays. Professor uh, Tabry, welcome to the program. Good to be with you, Tom. Thanks for having me. James Tabry joins us from the KUER studios in Salt Lake City. Appreciate you uh, being with us. Before we jump into this, I found significance, uh, perhaps unusually so, in your dedication. Uh, it's You dedicated to mom and dad. Sure. And, you know, that, that's that's nice, and I'm sure it's heartfelt, but in the context of what you're writing about, uh, there's some significance there. Yeah, it couldn't be more appropriate, right? Yeah, nature and nurture. Absolutely. Uh, together. <laughs> I wonder um, if you could uh, get us into this topic. Um, we'll jump a little bit ahead in the book and talk about uh, the debate over the interaction of nature and nurture as it manifests itself in depression. And so you you talk about uh, in 2003, there's a groundbreaking study on this interaction showing that a particular gene, uh, first of all, and then exposure to stressful life events uh, could combine to contribute to the risk of increased risk of developing depression. And so at that point, I I guess that was a high water mark for thinking we'd uh, moved past nature versus nurture. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll just take one kind of historical step backwards to give you a sense of why people were so excited about that study in 2003. So in the 1990s, um, after scientists had sequenced the human genome and um, were looking for particular genes associated with particular complex human traits like depression or um, criminal behavior or ADHD, um, the initial idea there was what they would do is go into the human genome and find genes for these complex human traits in the same way that they found genes for uh, medical disorders like Huntington's disease um, or certain kinds of cancers. And so there was a lot of excitement, and you'd see in headlines in the late 1990s things like, you know, gene for violence found or gene for schizophrenia found. Um, That excitement pretty quickly subsided, though, as other scientific teams tried to replicate those results. And and when the other teams tried to replicate those results by looking for the, the gene behavior association um, in, in other populations and in other labs, they didn't find the same association. And so right around, you know, 2000, 2001, scientists who studied human genetics, and in particular the human genetics of of behavior and psychiatric diseases and disorders, were really at kind of a 
a stopping point. They didn't quite know how to proceed because the initial excitement about a linking genes with behaviors seemed to run out of steam. So right around that time, this husband and wife team, uh, Terry Moffat and Absalom Caspi, they're both at Duke now, um, <clears throat> published a couple of studies that rather than looking at particular genes in association with complex traits, they combined particular genes with exposures to environments that were known to also um, predispose people to traits. And, and the study you just mentioned was on depression. So what they looked at was this gene called the serotonin transporter gene. It's a gene that basically affects um, neurotransmission in our brain. Serotonin is one of those neurochemicals that, that, are, that are in our brain. And, and, and the serotonin transporter gene um, creates a protein that, that controls how serotonin basically moves through our brain. Um, they combined the serotonin transporter gene with exposure to stressful life events. So stressful life events here, we're talking about things like death of a loved one, losing your job, divorce. And what they found was when you combine those two factors, rather than just a genetic factor or just an environmental factor, um, they uh, could predict depression at a much higher rate than scientists in the past who just looked at genes or just looked at an environment. Um, and as you said, this created a lot of excitement because it, it both conceptually broke through the kind of nature versus nurture divide because they were combining them. And it also looked like it might have kind of presented a new way forward for doing human genetics. If the geneticists were striking out when they were trying to combine single genes and behaviors, maybe the key was to combine a gene with an environmental exposure. And so um, this study got lots of attention, um, and, and it really got people excited about this was going to be the new way that they were going to do genetics. And I think a lot of that excitement uh, comes from the fact that we, I suppose just on in an intuitive level, we, we understand, even perhaps if we haven't read studies, that it's, it's going to be some interaction of the two, isn't it? It's going That's to be exactly nature right. and nurture. If you have this gene for violence or gene for schizophrenia or whatever, the, the environment's going to have an effect as well. So tell us, um, tell us what happened after that initial excitement. Good. Yeah, the, you know, the subtitle of the book is The Struggle to Understand the Interaction of Nature and Nurture, and it really gets at what you just said there, which is, on the one hand, the thought and the, you know, the reality that genes and the environment interact is just so intuitive. And so people get that. And, and, and you're right, when, when this study by Moffat and Caspi came out, um, there was, it didn't just punch through the nature versus nurture divide. It, as you said, it also just sounded right, right? Of course it would be both genes and the environment. Um, the trick has been, or the, I would say the, the, the struggle and the struggle to understand the interaction of nature and nurture has been to figure out what exactly that looks like in detail. And so, you know, the, the next iteration of this story then was because there was all this excitement about the original study in 2003, uh, scientists again did the natural next thing, which is to try to replicate it. So the, again, the way replication works is you'll have scientists in different labs studying different populations trying to see if they can find that same result. So these are scientists, you know, anywhere from Greece and Italy to Japan and China, looked at populations in their countries to see if combining serotonin transporter gene with stressful life events accounts for depression. And what was really interesting was, rather than um, all the replications coming back in favor of the original study, or all the replications coming back 
against the original study. They kind of got this mixed bag. So there were several dozen of these replications that were done, and many came back positive, and many came back negative. And so when scientists are faced with this, they're kind of at a, 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 a difficult position because the replications are supposed to either lend support or against. And what they found instead was that um, it didn't answer the question. So the next move, again, this is kind of just a natural next move for scientists, is to do something called a meta-analysis. And the way a meta-analysis works is it combines the data and results from a bunch of studies, analyzes that whole big data set as one pool of data to see if the result comes up there. And so meta-analyses are often kind of... Um, a colleague of mine in the philosophy department, Jacob Stegenga, puts it really well. They're often considered the platinum standard of evidence because rather than being any individual study, the way a meta-analysis works is it pulls from a bunch of studies. Things got weird, though. Three meta-analyses have been done to date. Uh, two came out in 2009. One came out in 2011. Um, and they came back mixed as well. So the two that came out in 2009 that looked at a bunch of replications came back negative, suggesting that the original study um, hadn't been supported. But then the one that came back in 2011 came back positive, suggesting that the original study was supported. And so this is why the scientists at present are kind of um, at a stopping point, because there's really no test available to scientists after a meta-analysis. That's kind of as high as you go. And, and, and that's usually taken to be the kind of final word on these things. And so to run multiple meta-analyses and have them come back both positive and negative really has the kind of scientists at a loss right now. And so, uh, you know, for me, this is kind of a fascinating philosophical issue. And, and, and basically the book tries to kind of, you know, tell the history of how we got here and, 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 and give us a picture of why scientists who are all, in one sense, investigating the same thing, um, the interaction of nature and nurture, um, how genes in the environment relate as, it, you know, produces something like depression, could actually have very, very different assessments of where we stand right now. It seems like the stakes are high and getting higher Maybe because it seems like we're so tantalizingly close to solving some very serious problems. If we just, you know, discover the gene just and discover the interaction with the environment um, in a solid way. Uh, so I guess that that's why it's frustrating that uh, it seems like scientists are talking past each other, looking at the same data and getting different results or parsing out different results. Yeah, I think the, the results are high probably in, in, in um, multiple ways. So one way the results are high is, as you mentioned, um, you know, these all these scientists involved, um, they're doing their work because they love science. And, and, you know, they're interested in making the world a better place. And the way they make the, better, the world a better place is to help understand how the world works. So, you know, something like depression affects, you know, hundreds of millions of people worldwide. Um, it would be excellent if we could figure out, you know, the kind of biomechanisms that give rise to this um, so that we could predict who's at risk and do something to prevent it from happening. And and so scientists are kind of, you know, interested in being a part of that story. Um, the other side of it, as you said, is there's also this kind of, you know, hope that we're kind of near the, the um, finish line, right? And if we can, if we can, get that 
last kind of piece of the puzzle where everything comes together. And on this route, it was if we could just figure out how this gene and this environment interact to, to produce depression, um, then we'll, you know, we'll finally have, you know, the puzzle complete. The third way, though, in which the stakes are high is also with regards to um, grant money and, and, you know, who funds this science. So, you know, many of the, we're past the age of, of uh, Charles Darwin and Isaac Newton, where science is done by independently wealthy, um, you know, basically white men, right, that kind of can just sit at home and, and, and think about things as long as they want and publish when they want. Now, science is a, you know, it's an international, collaborative, competitive um, endeavor. And, and, and what you have are, are, are people who are submitting grant applications to do the kind of research that they want to do. And one strand towards approaching um, uh, the genetics of complex traits, as I mentioned, was combining genes and environment. This is what Caspian Moffat became famous for. But right around that, remember I kind of went back to the late 1990s where the, the hope that single genes would associate with single behaviors, that promise broke down. The other strand that emerged right around that same time um, was research uh, on something called genome-wide association studies. So sometimes you'll see the acronym GWAS, or or people will say GWA. So the way these genome-wide association studies work is they uh, they're interested in some kind of um, trait. So we'll stick with depression. They find um, hundreds, thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people that have that particular condition. They then do a sequence of the entire genome of all those people. They then take another sample of roughly the same number who don't have the trait, sequence their entire genomes. And what they're hoping to do then is see if they can find multiple genes in the individuals that have depression that the individuals without depression don't have. So the reason I mention this is because this was kind of an alternate approach to doing human genetics when the single gene behavior um, paradigm broke down. And you can see it's quite different. In contrast to the, the interaction approach where you combine a single gene with an environmental exposure, what these people are doing is looking at the entire genome and see if they can find, you know, maybe five, 10, or 100 genes that all increase risk of having depression. Let's, I wonder if we could go uh, back yeah. now, as, as you do in, in your book. In fact, the nature versus nurture, of course, is with us from the very beginning. People have wondered about this this interaction. You cite Plato, who, yeah. who mentioned this. He has Socrates talk about this. Uh, Shakespeare, as he did with so many other things, uh, maybe was the first to name this. Yeah, saw it coming. Uh, maybe, what play is this from? Oh, um, it's, uh, I, I, I think it's recall. The Tempest. Yeah, yeah. And, and so he has a, a, a verse, a couple of verses that mention in a particular man, is it nature versus or nurture? Yeah, he calls him a devil, a born devil, on whose nature nurture could never stick. But as it's just a wonderful way of putting yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, a lot of this goes back to Shakespeare. Um, but then you, uh, sort of the father of this, is is it Francis Galton? Seems, That's right, Charles Darwin's cousin. Yeah. So tell me about him and, uh, and, and wh- how he took Darwin's theories and science and and ex- he wanted to apply this evolution uh to to humans yeah. which i guess is is an obvious thing and a very high stakes thing uh what happened when he started looking at this good so 
Francis Galton is kind of commonly thought of as the father of the nature-nurture debate, and I think that really makes sense. So on the one hand, you're right. You have people talking about the nature and nurture of, of human traits long before him. Shakespeare it goes back to ancient uh, Greek philosophy. But what makes Galton unique is he first was he was the first one to really kind of envision a science of what nature versus nurture could be. And so he was Charles Darwin's younger brother, or I'm sorry, younger cousin, when Charles Darwin publishes On the Origin of Species in 1859, Darwin was very careful to keep humans out of the picture. And he was keeping humans out of the picture because he knew he had a controversial thesis, and he didn't want to make it even more controversial by implicating humans in the story as well. Galton had no trouble with this. He immediately saw how Darwin's ideas about natural selection and and survival of the fittest could play out in humans. And so what Galton was interested in is if we're interested in perpetuating traits that we like and getting rid of traits that we don't like in humans, then we need to figure out whether those traits are the result of nature or nurture. Um, And, you know, he's writing now in the 1860s, 70s, 80s. We don't even have the concept of a gene yet. So we're really just talking about is it heredity or is it environment? Um, and, And so Galton was the first one to kind of, you know, really phrase the question in this way and then try to answer it. And, and what he did to answer it was really fascinating. So first stab at it, he tried to collect a bunch of basically kind of like family histories of famous people in Britain, judges, generals, um, scientists. And what he found was um, what you might think as, you know, um, uh, uh, genius was passed down in families. And, and this for him was a suggestion that nature was really in in the driver's seat. And so what we get from Galton is kind of that first formulation of, is it nature or is it nurture? And we should care about this because we want to do something about it. And we also get an answer for Galton. It was very clearly, it was nature. And, and, but uh, as you point out, that's because he was looking at specific families that kind of throw you to nature, wouldn't it? Exactly. And and so the problem with looking at just families, right, is that individuals inherit both their nature and their nurture from their parents, right? So you mentioned earlier how uh, the book is dedicated to my, to my mom and my dad. Um, if I have some kind of um, trait, right, um, maybe I'm interested in music and, and, and my parents are both interested in music as well. So one way you could look at that and say is, oh, there must be some kind of gene or hereditary component to interest in music because that's what I inherited from my parents. But obviously, everybody also inherits their environment from their parents as well. So it's just as likely there's nothing genetic about music, musical interest. It's I was raised in a home where people are playing lots of music and instruments are, 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 are valued. Um, so that's a problem, right? The, the kind of the looking at family history doesn't necessarily solve it. Um, now, to this day, you'll still see scientists doing this kind of thing. Um, but the, the, the challenge that it presents is it doesn't really give you the ability to disentangle nature and nurture. And that's really kind of what a lot of people want to do. They want to be able to say, if we're talking about depression, or we're talking about um, uh, uh, religious convictions, or we're talking about um, uh, musical talent, is it nature or is it nurture? And how much of it is nature and how much of it is nurture? And just looking at families won't let you do that. Hmm. 
I wonder, before we go to break, uh, I was going to do this later in the program, mm-hmm. but uh, what you just said right there, I, I want to bring this forward. Um, Steve in Beaverdam, Arizona, sent me a couple of New York Times articles yeah. um, yesterday when he heard the topic for, for the program today. Thanks, Steve, for doing that. Uh, by the way, you can join this conversation. I've neglected to reintroduce our guest, uh, who is James Tabor, associate professor of philosophy at the University of Utah. He's uh, joining us from the KUR studios in Salt Lake City. His interesting new book out from MIT Press is Beyond Versus, The Struggle to Understand the Interaction of Nature and Nurture. He's trying to get at the uh, fact that, uh, as he's cited in uh, studies trying to look at uh, genes versus environment on uh, susceptibility to depression, uh, there's a debate still raging and scientists are looking at the same data and coming to different conclusions. His book is, is How Do We Resolve That? Anyway, these, these articles, I'll just read the headlines. Um, how much do our genes influence our political beliefs? And the, uh, the author here uh, cites some studies which uh, look at uh, the possibility of some genes which, uh, which predispose us to, uh, to, to certain um, you know, beliefs. Uh, the other article, Does Evolution Explain Religious Beliefs? And so we're, we're trying to parse this out. In, in this case, as Steve is pointing out, that uh, in, in these two cases where we've uh, generally uh, seen come down on the side of uh, perhaps uh, nurture, now we're looking and tilting the balance more toward nature. We're trying to, we're trying to tease this out in a whole range of, of issues in our lives. Yeah, I think, I mean... What's so fascinating about the nature-nurture debate and, and the, the articles that Steve shared with us really gets at this is people will simultaneously say two things about it. The first thing they'll say is the nature-nurture debate is obviously over, right? Everybody kind of knows it's not nature or nurture anymore. It's both. And then the second thing they'll say is, I just heard this study and it shows that such and such is nature and such and such is nurture, right? So it's kind of, it's 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 considered a done deal, and yet these studies keep emerging that suggest some kind of new insight, which tilts the you know the balance in favor of one or the other, keep coming out. Um, and again, kind of as a historian and a philosopher of science, I find that fascinating because it it shows you that it really isn't settled. It, it suggests that there's more than just kind of data and results that people are arguing about. It's really kind of you know how they do science at stake. One question, I suppose, somebody you know perhaps have been living in a cave for. Well, I guess you'd have to go back beyond Plato, as you point out. But but coming to this cold, you might ask, is why do we care so much? Why, do, why don't we just accept that it is and, and look at the best science on how to solve some of these problems? Mm-hmm. Why, why do we care so much about this? I think two reasons. One reason is we're just kind of, you know, curious about, about how we work and how we tick. And so, you know, um, humans want to know where these things come from, right? Where does schizophrenia come from? How is it Programming that, on that Utah people public brain. Um, come to be more intelligent than other people? And so I think there's just this kind of curiosity and science as, attempts to scratch that itch. Hmm. But the other aspect of it is we want to do something about it. So, you know, um, schizophrenia is a very debilitating disease. And if we can figure out how it develops then we can try to stop that. And answering the nature versus nurture debate directs scientists as to where they should be targeting their interventions. If it's primarily genetic, then you need to kind of look in the body and in the DNA to do something about what that DNA is doing to prevent it. If it's nurture, then you need to look to the environment and try to intervene there. So it's that combination of curiosity and wanting to use that knowledge to make the world a better place that will continue to have people interested in nature versus nurture. 
We are talking with James Tabor. He is uh, Associate Professor of uh, Philosophy at University of Utah. His book, out from MIT Press, is Beyond Versus, The Struggle to Understand the Interaction of Nature and Nurture. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll uh, talk a bit about eugenics. Uh, Francis Galton, of whom we've been speaking, uh, talked about this, got into this. He, he didn't get into the the controversial aspects of this that manifested themselves, uh, I think, most uh, fully in the 1930s with eugenic sterilizations. We'll talk about this as it regard as it applies to the whole debate in the 1970s. And Professor uh, Tabor has this in his book as well over disparities in IQ between blacks and whites in the U.S. And uh, we'll get into how do we bridge this divide and some interesting uh, points that the professor has in his book about the future bioethics. Uh, we can sidestep some of the uh, some of these debates. For example, um, genes uh, predisposed predisposed to violence. But uh, he talks about a genetic guide to parenting. Very uh, intriguing. We'll get to that following the break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Addison Bread in Logan. Open for breakfast Monday through Friday at 7 a.m. and Saturdays at 8 a.m. featuring Coke Madame and Coke Monsieur. Made with sour duck bread, ham, and chills. Menu details at cronbrothers.com. So what is it that attracts insects and predators to your garden? There's nothing worse than finding a growing succulent peach taken over by earwigs. For many insects, the same thing that attract them also attract you. Something good to eat. Find out how to control them this Thursday on The Zesty Garden. Also, in Wait, Wait, Don't Plant That, you'll learn the dangers of vinca or periwinkle. Then we wrap things up with the wonder of roses with petals and prose. That's this Thursday morning at 10 o'clock on The Zesty Garden. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking about nature versus nurture. We're fascinated by this. And people have been uh, back as early as time of Plato which uh, Professor Tabry cites in his book. We're talking with James Tabry, Associate Professor of Philosophy at University of Utah. His book out from MIT Press is Beyond Versus, The Struggle to Understand the Interaction of Nature versus Nurture. The uh, kernel uh, or the impetus for this book, Professor Tabry writes, is uh, that uh, he takes the example of the debate over uh, nature versus nurture when it comes to clinical depression. Uh, and uh, scientists can take and do, up to this point, uh, the same set of data and come to radically different uh, results, meaning from that. How do we bridge that divide? And uh, Professor Tabry does uh, have a prescription for that. First, uh, I want to take us back to eugenics. Uh, Francis Galton talked about this in the 1800s, reached a sort of an apex in terms of problematic aspects in the 1930s with eugenic sterilizations. Uh, I wonder if you could pick it up there, Professor. Um, eugenics, uh, because as we've been saying, uh, we're looking at nature versus nurture, we're looking at the interaction, and we're trying to solve problems uh, with, with this. And then the one problem that was seen, at least by some people, was uh, there are too many children being born to, uh, say, in some cases, lower-cost people or the undesirable people, and too little being born to people who, with traits that we want. And uh, that's and so that had those people coming down and definitely on one side, and then you had anti-eugenics coming out down on the other side of this debate. Yeah, exactly. So 
Just before the break, you asked why do people care about nature versus nurture? And, and again, one of the reasons people are interested in it because they think if they can get an answer to the question about, say, you know, is criminality more due to nature or more to nurture, then if we want to get rid of criminality, we can focus on, you know, do we do clean up the environment or do we do something about um, uh, violent people and the genes that they have? Um, so Galton gives us the term eugenics, and eugenics is just, it means good birth. And, you know, when you think of it that way, it's, you know, it's kind of commonsensical. Everybody wants a good birth. You want your child to have a good birth. Um, and so eugenics was a, a, a scientific idea that we should harness the power of uh, evolution and harness the power of human genetics to produce good births. Um, where that got Dicey, though, was because good birth is a very value-laden term. And so, you know, different people had different ideas about what made a good birth a good birth. And as you said, the eugenicists clearly came down on the nature side of things. And so what they saw uh, in Britain and the United States and a number of other countries um, across the world was was uh, people deemed undesirable, um, lower classes, um, uh, a lot of times uh, these were minority groups. Um, the eugenicists saw them having many, many children. And then they looked around at the uh, people that they found desirable, um, more upper class individuals. Um, most of these people were white, right? They weren't having enough children. And so the solution, if the traits that are deemed undesirable are, are found more in the lower classes than in the higher classes, was to both encourage people in the higher classes to have more children, to pass their good genes on to the next generation, and also to do something about preventing people in the, in the lower classes deemed undesirable from having so many children. And, and you know, it, that, that attempt to prevent people from having children deemed undesirable really kind of, you know, um, took on its most hideous form in the form of involuntary sterilizations. And so tens of thousands of people across the United States, um, quite a few in Utah, were sterilized because uh, uh, they were deemed to not be able to essentially produce a good birth. Um, Anti-eugenicists, as you said, kind of came down on the other side. It was, it was more nurture that gave rise to these things. And so they didn't think sterilization was the answer. It was more about creating an environment that was more conducive to preventing things like violence or uh, mental disease. Maybe you could uh, skip ahead now to briefly treat how this, and you, your point is that in each stage, at least as you present these vignettes in the book, scientists are sort of talking past each other uh, with different cast of characters, different issues, but it's the same debate. Uh, so what if you could apply this now to the IQ um, controversy uh, in the 1970s? You bet. So, right, so... You know, kind of to pull the arc from the eugenic research in the 1930s all the way to the present where now scientists are, are arguing about the causes of depression. What you see when you look at this history is um, two pretty standard responses to thinking about the interaction of nature and nurture. One group of scientists will really focus on studying the interaction of nature and nurture, think it's, it's a very common phenomenon. It's a very common phenomenon that we have to investigate and understand. Um, and 
uh, it's primarily a developmental phenomenon. So when we talk about, um, you know, genes and the environment interacting, it's about how genes and the environment interact during development. And, and to the extent that we investigate it, we can understand the process of how something like depression or criminality emerges. Um, but throughout that 100-year history, there's been another very different way of thinking about the interaction of nature and nurture. And on that side, um, the interaction of nature and nurture is a relatively rare phenomenon. Um, it's kind of an annoyance because if you're interested in, in distinguishing, say, you know, whether depression is more nature or more nurture or whether criminality is more genes or more environment, then the interaction of nature and nurture kind of gets in the way of trying to tease that apart. And what's kind of fascinating about the history is in the 1930s, when, when eugenicists and anti-eugenicists were, were arguing, in the 1970s, where the debate was about um, whether differences in IQ score between African-American and Caucasian uh, populations in the U.S. was more genes or more environment, and then to the present, where the debate is about depression, these same arguments and these same positions keep coming up over and over again. And as you said, right, it's not like this is just because one person is perpetuating them. We're talking about 100 years of history here. The characters keep changing. The decades keep changing. The context keeps changing. The science keeps changing. And yet you keep finding these two same positions basically emerge. One side saying really important, really common. Another side saying really not that important, really rare in nature. Mm. And so the way that's played out in the IQ controversy of the 1970s was um, a a scientist by the name of Arthur Jensen at the University of Berkeley um, suggested that the gap in IQ, well, just to kind of back up. So um, at that time, it was known that on average, African-Americans scored about 15 points lower on IQ tests than Caucasians. Okay. And um, that was seen as a problem. The cause, the kind of the, you know, this is the 1960s. So the cause that people traditionally thought explained that was nurture, right? One of these populations has been systematically exposed to discrimination, slavery, disenfranchisement, segregation. So, of course, right, we would expect um, the average IQ score to be lower in that population than the other the other population. Arthur Jensen comes along and says, not so fast. Actually, if you look at... Um, the nature and nurture of IQ, much of it is actually genetic. And because of that, um, it's not just about cleaning up the environment. We just need to accept the fact that one of these groups is genetically inferior to the other one with regards to IQ. Um, and as you might uh, you know, imagine, this created a huge uproar um, because it suggested that you know, investing in things like Head Start and compensatory education to make up that gap weren't going to be successful because it was a genetic one. Um, and so you saw these, you know, the two positions about the interaction of nature and nurture emerge all over again in the 1970s. Some scientists were saying, wait a second, you're forgetting about the interaction of nature and nurture. Intelligence and IQ can't just simply be nature versus nurture. It's going to be both. Scientists on the other side said, you're just confused. Um, uh, interaction is rare in nature. We really don't need to worry about it in this case because we've got studies that show it's primarily nature. We're going to take another break, uh, and when we come back, uh, an interesting email from uh, Steve, who I referenced earlier, so uh, thank you, Steve, uh, which will get us into epigenetics, this idea that acquired traits can be inherited, and that gets us, of course, in, continues in this discussion to what we've been talking about, nature versus nurture. Uh, the book is Beyond Versus, 
It's out from MIT Press. My guest is Associate Professor of Philosophy at University of Utah, James Tabry. You're welcome to join this conversation at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio, or you can call 1-800-826-1495. Following break. The staff of Utah Public Radio acknowledges Menden resident Lou Gay on her retirement from the greenhouse in Logan. For 27 years, Lou shared her artistic talent and knowledge of plants, showed commitment to her patrons, and was a mentor to her co-workers in what has become fondly known as Lou's House. Congratulations, Lou Gay, on your recent retirement. My name's Lois Olson. I'm a member of the Team Utah Public Radio participating in the Cash Grand Fondo Bicycle Ride this Saturday in Logan. Proceeds from the ride go towards funding breast cancer screenings. Come enjoy the Grand Fondo Expo and Outdoor Show Friday and Saturday on Logan's Center Street. And be sure to visit the UPR booth. More information is at upr.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We have another uh, 10 or 15 minutes left in the program. We'd uh, love your response to these issues at 1-800-826-1495. You can email us, upraxis at gmail.com. We're on Twitter, at Utah Public Radio. If scientists supposedly now agree it's not nature versus nurture, but the interaction of nature and nurture, why is the debate still going on? Well, that uh, problem is tackled by... James Tabor, University of Utah Associate Professor of Philosophy, in his book out from MIT Press, Beyond Versus. And we're talking about this on the program today. Here's an email from uh, Steve. He says, The fairly new field of epigenetics focuses on the naughty question that you are discussing this morning. Contrary to what we were all taught in seventh grade science, epigenetics has shown that acquired traits can indeed be inherited. For instance, there was a study of women starved during pregnancy during the Nazi occupation of Holland. The deleterious effects of starvation were passed down several generations for epigenetic reasons that are now fairly well understood. If such things can be coded for inheritance, we have fused nature and nurture into a single package, haven't we? That's what Steve says. Uh, Professor Tabor. Yeah, the study of epigenetics is interesting. Um, also, as, as he said, a relatively recent phenomenon, and also like the interaction of nature and nurture, breaks down that clear divide between the two. So, um, let's kind of distinguish them, and then kind of understand where the relationship is. So, the way epigenetics works is um, our individual genomes basically. Um, are affected by the environments that we're in. And so, you know, it's not just, again, kind of DNA that we inherit from our parents. It's also environments. And being exposed to different environments turns genes on and off in different ways. Um, That's kind of the way epigenetics works. The way the interaction of nature and nurture works is it's not just about what you individually with your genome exposed to your environment experience. It's about how... um, two people with, say, um, uh, the same genes respond to different environments. So let's say um, we'll talk about um, something like allergies, for instance. Um, You, Tom, and I uh, could have different variants of the same gene that that, um, affects our immune system. And then when you expose us to, say, the same environment, uh, this could be, you know, raised in a home with a dog, um, 
that could increase your risk of developing allergies in, later in life, and that could decrease my risk of developing allergies later in life. And so the interaction of nature and nurture is primarily about that, the way individuals with different genes respond differently to environments that they're, that they're exposed to. Epigenetics is primarily about your one person, just take one person with their genome, and how the environments that they're exposed to turn on and off genes in different ways, and the way that can be transmitted to future generations. Um, but what they hold in common, again, is they really do just kind of pull the rug out from under this idea of nature versus nurture, because in both cases, what they show is, if you're interested in allergies, if you're interested in depression, um, it's never going to be one or the other. You need to be able to tell the kind of causal story about how they relate. Wonder. Uh, I want to make sure I get this in, so I'll skip ahead uh, right now to this, and then later on to give your uh, your solution to the to the scientists talking past each other mm -hmm. and and the problem that you you uh, elucidate in your book. You talk about ethical issues that uh, may well arise in the future. You have a particular example, a, a particular gene combined with particular environments. So the gene is MAOA. Mm -hmm. And uh, if a person has a particular variant of that gene and a particular environment, in other words, they were maltreated in childhood, then an increase uh, in likelihood of antisocial behaviors. And this, this, I think this came out in 2002. Yep. So bioethicists, you say, wondered whether uh, or not prospective parents would screen embryos during pre-implantation for that genetic diagnosis um, uh, or for... for Perhaps uh, others wondered whether or not states would screen newborns to identify those children that carry this genetic predisposition to violence. And that's very logical. You know, we want to solve problems. We want to solve them early. If we have the tools, perhaps we can do that. Of course, there are problems, <laughs> obvious problems with that. I wonder if you talk a bit about that and why it's very important how we interpret the results of these Good. So, so you mentioned the 2002 study. That was again done by that husband and wife team, uh, Terry Moffat and Avshalom Caspi. So this is kind of the other piece of the puzzle that emerges in the early 2000s and why their research got such a lot of attention. Right. So uh, in this case, the gene is something called MAOA. Um, it creates uh, a, a, an enzyme, a neuroenzyme in the brain that breaks down neurotransmitters. The environment that they looked at was um, childhood maltreatment. So we're talking about everything from on the severe end, things like physical abuse, um, sexual abuse, to things like neglect, um, harsh punishment. And the trait that they were looking at was antisocial behavior. Um, so antisocial behavior is, is a, a antisocial personality disorder is a, a clinical diagnosis. And basically somebody who has antisocial personality disorder sort of uh, systematically looks for opportunities to um, take advantage of other people. So it's a very predatory behavior, and not surprisingly, it correlates with criminal violence. Um, and so what Moffat and Caspi found in that particular situation is that if you had the, the kind of low version of MAOA and you were exposed to severe childhood maltreatment, you were at much greater risk of uh, things like criminal violence later in life than if you had the high version of MAOA and were exposed to um, severe maltreatment. And, and this created a lot of excitement. Again, you know, we talked earlier about genes and behaviors. The thought was we finally kind of figured out, right, what's the relationship between genes and environment with, with regards to criminal violence? And people then really honed in on 
these individuals with low MAOA as the population that we needed to do something about because if they were severely maltreated, they were much more likely to, to engage in criminal violence. And as you said, people kind of have made all sorts of suggestions. Um, uh, somebody suggested that states should be screening all their children to see who has low MAOA to keep an eye on them. Um, uh, other people suggested that parents should screen their embryos when they're doing pre-implantation genetic diagnosis and then uh, implanting an embryo so that they don't implant the embryo with, with low MAOA. Here's the funny thing, though. <clears throat> all the attention was focused on what happens to these to these individuals with MAOA in environments with severe maltreatment. But if you go to environments where there's no maltreatment, and, and in fact, that's primarily right, the environments that most of us are, 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 are raised in, um, they found the exact opposite result. So in environments where there was no maltreatment, individuals with the low MAOA were actually at less risk of developing antisocial behavior than individuals with the high MAOA. So go back to that kind of recommendation for parents to um, screen their children or screen their embryos, right? It would only make sense for parents to screen their embryos to implant high MAOA embryo if they're already planning on maltreating that child, right? Which is just kind of a silly idea. If they're not planning on maltreating the child, you would actually plan to implant the low MAOA embryo. Um, I raise this in the book because it's just an interesting case where, you know, this interaction of nature and nurture is quite complicated because it's about not just a gene for a behavior or an environment for behavior, but the relationship between the two. And, and here were really intelligent people publishing articles and, and, and editorials and making recommendations about policy. And they were just kind of completely misunderstanding what the results of that study were because they only focused on the end of the, the spectrum where severe maltreatment took place. And if that's a relatively rare phenomenon, um, then we shouldn't be focusing on, you know, just dealing with those low MAOA individuals. The real solution is just to kind of, you know, try to prevent childhood maltreatment. Uh, at the end of the book, you uh, have a very interesting chapter where you move beyond sort of the, some of these high-publicized issues that we've just been talking about and uh, go to maybe some everyday things um, yeah. like childhood allergies or temper tantrums. Right. And you, uh, you say that perhaps that's where we, we ought to be looking. And, and you talk about, and this was very intriguing to me, perhaps in the future uh, parents can have a genetic parental guide. We yeah. Talk so briefly about that. Sure. The idea here is, <clears throat> well, kind of back up. There is a major interest now in trying to get the whole genome sequence of newborns when they're born. So the National Institutes of Health just invested millions of dollars in this, in sequencing newborns right when they're born. Um, and that raises all sorts of kind of interesting, interesting ethical questions. Um, you had some guests on your show back in April where you were talking about genetic testing and the $1,000 genome. The reason people are so excited about this is because it's relatively cheap now to sequence an entire genome. And the, the target that everybody's shooting for is the $1,000 genome. And you can kind of see the attraction to this, right? Um, my wife and I just, just had our, our, our first child recently, and so we had to, you know, Put a nursery together. Um, you can spend, you know, a thousand dollars on a crib, you know, without batting an eye. So, the thought that you can spend 
an equal amount of money and get the whole genome sequence of, of the baby who's sleeping in that crib is quite attractive. And, and people are excited about that. Most of the attention, most of the kind of ethical focus on this new technology is sort of about, you know, well, what if we find out that the genes, uh, you know, that this child has a genetic predisposition to breast cancer later in life or has a genetic predisposition to early onset Alzheimer's later in life, right? And so the focus is on kind of what if we find out these bad things early in life and then, and then how are we going to treat the child differently? But what I try to kind of point out is probably more likely what's going to happen is parents are going to try to use that genetic information to shape the environment um, to increase or decrease the chances of more kind of mundane things happening. And so you just mentioned the allergies. There's a particular gene that affects our immune system. And if you have one version of it, certain environmental exposures like being raised in a, uh, in a home with a dog or being sent to daycare um, can decrease the risk of those children having allergies. Other versions of the same gene uh, either have no effect or might even increase the risk of having allergies later in life. So I called the chapter a genetic guide to parenting because what the idea seems to be or what the possibility is that parents would kind of get the whole genome sequence of their child and use that to kind of inform decisions that they would be making anyway, right? I mean, somewhere in, in, in Utah right now, a family is deciding um, uh, whether or not to send their kid to daycare. And somewhere in Utah right now, parents are having a discussion about whether or not to add a, a dog to the, to the family. And what's kind of interesting about this new technology is the thought that they might actually kind of look to their child's genome to inform that decision, uh, so uh, that sort of raises the stakes, doesn't it? It's it's uh, it, it makes it incumbent upon you and upon me to understand this better. Exactly. And and if and if scientists are talking past each other, <laughs> I guess that's the reason for your book. That's, but yeah, but we're, exactly. we're we're all going to have to become experts on this, aren't we? If we want to use this properly. Yeah, and I think that you know the key is making sure that people aren't acting on this information before it's actually been verified. So the studies that I point to in, in the book are all quite new. Um, you know, uh, there's discussion about you know acting all sorts of genetic information after just one study comes out. But really, we're just kind of you know we talked at the beginning of the program about putting that last piece of the puzzle in because we're almost at the finish line. I think when it comes to human genetics, it's much more like we're on, you know, the first few steps of the race. And so acting on that information before we actually kind of understand how it works um, can do a whole lot more damage than, than sitting back and waiting. Mm. And we're, uh, we've reached the end of our program. You'll have to read the book to come to uh, Professor uh, Tabri's uh, he calls it a bridge between two camps in, in this debate, at least among the scientific world. Uh, that, that understand this, and he calls it an explanatory divide. He, he provides a, a bridge there. Uh, that's in the book. Beyond Versus, The Struggle to Understand the Interaction of Nature and Nurture. James Tabor is University of Utah Associate Professor of Philosophy. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Tom. It was a pleasure. Very interesting uh, topic. Uh, coming up top of the hour, it is Brian Earle, and he has Diane Alston in on the Zesty Garden, USU Extension Entomologist, uh, to handle all of your pest questions. And tomorrow on the program, Sherry Quinn returns with some interesting scientific top topics on science questions. Uh, for uh, producers, uh, Christian Rodriguez and Elizabeth Gee, I'm Tom Williams. Thanks so much for listening today.